0: Turn, if you would, to uh, Colossians. I thought it might be good for us to just to kind of um, maybe reset and read um, um, from the beginning through chapter 2, verse 15, where we're going to be looking at today. Um, would somebody like to volunteer to read read that portion for us? Kind of a lot, but... Um, if somebody would like to, that would be great. If not, I can do it. Anybody want to volunteer? I can read it. All right. Say it again. Chapter 1, uh, the beginning of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 15. Oh, the whole Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wait, I have a cold.
1: Okay. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. In our prayers for you we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. You have heard of this hope before in the word of the truth, the gospel that has come to you. Just as it is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world, So it has been bearing fruit among yourselves from the day you heard it and truly comprehended the grace of God. This you learn from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God, will in all God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit and every good work and as you grow in the knowledge of God. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has res- rescued us. From the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place and everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making paid peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his fleshly body to death so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, became a servant of this gospel. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings For your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. For I want you to know how much I am struggling with you, and for those in Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love, so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I am saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, and I rejoice to see your morale and the firmness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, And you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a spiritual circumcision by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, you were also raised with him through faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, when he forgave all your trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it.
0: All right, thank you. So, what translation is that? Uh, The wrong one? No, it was good. (laughs) I, I liked it. Okay, the RSV. That's good. That was interesting. That I like the wording there. Uh, John Piper quotes the RSV a lot. I don't know if you've noticed that in his writings. But um, Last week we were looking at um, verse 8 of chapter 2 um, where it says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. According to the to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So today we're going to look at the reasons why to resist that, all right? I mean, we've got to be careful of that because it is out there. No doubt it's out there. We all get inundated with that day in and day out. So we, we want to look at the reasons why we should resist, how we should resist being taken captive by the philosophies of the world. So he says in verse 9, For in him the Whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 10, And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So, He Jesus, we have to understand that Jesus is more than merely God-like, right? Um, he's more than simply overflowing with the character of God. One commentator said this, The essence of God, undivided and in its whole fullness, dwells in Christ in his exalted state so that he is the essential and adequate image of God. So the statement that we're looking at here, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, that, that just blows anything of the Gnostics' ideas and philosophies, just blows them away, annihilates them, right? Because they said, you know, Jesus comes or he got where he is from these little emanations from God and these... Angelic mediators, but no, he is holy God. And, and we see this fullness of God at work in the heavens and the creation around us, as chapter one, uh, is when Dave read that, you could see how that is explained in creation. But in Christ, we see the face of God, right? Think about that. In Christ alone, we actually are looking at the face of God. He's the sole temple of deity in in whom the divine glories of God are actually stored. So um, this book, everybody in here needs to get a copy of this book and read it multiple times. I mean, this, Darby told me about this when I started in Colossians, and it I'm telling you, I think Chris Brackett told him about it, and it is just absolute. this will, it changed my view of how much, Jesus is it, y'all, okay, that's it, you know, and and I know we all know that, but this just brought me to a point of understanding that um, since I wrote this side of the book, since Jesus is the eternal Son of God, um, He is the exact imprint of His Father, so we see Him, we see in Him just what God is like, there is no more, you know, He's it, right, He. Is God, and and that's the the whole beauty. I mean, this guy he really unpacks this well. I don't know if did anybody go to the Shepherds Conference this year. Um, he spoke there. Some people told me some people liked him, some didn't. He's British, so he writes with a little humor, kind of weird humor in there from time to time. But also um, my. Uh, Wednesday small group is uh going through we're, we're we're looking at some videos from ligonier ministry of the uh the Reformation, you know, how that all came about and really interesting speaker, very engaging with that British accent and he leaves you hanging right on the edge. You know, so far we've looked at the um at Tyndale and and Luther and last week we looked at uh King Henry and and all of his wives, and how God used Henry to, um, uh, as politically, as to help bring about the Reformation. So, <clears throat> this truth of Jesus really is great in and of itself, right? And, and that alone is what's gonna keep us from being taken captive by these uh, deceitful, empty philosophies. But there's something else that's Paul just it just gets better say it that way, right? Because look what he says in verse 10. I mean, this is breathtaking when you think about it. This Christ, this Jesus, who's full of deity, he fills us. Think of that. He fills us. Verse 10 says, and you have, have, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. I mean, that's almost kind of scary in a sense, you know, to think that, in Christ, we are full of God, right? And, and Jesus, can, he can hold all the fullness of deity, but we can't, even though he fills us, we can't hold it all, right? But we're full of his fullness, if that makes sense. And, and here's kind of a way to maybe explain this. Have you ever stood at the beach? The Travers were at the beach last week. Have you ever stood at the beach with your toes in the water, just standing there on the shore, you know, the little waves splashing on your feet, and realize just how little you really are. You know, I mean, think about that. You know, whenever I get in a place that I'm not used to, I seem, in my mind, anyway, I shrink. I get real little, you know, and standing on the edge of the beach there, looking out, and just that vastness that's out there. Well, you know, if I were to take... My cup that I, my red solo cup that my tea's in, and you know, and, and if I bent over and just kind of held it there, and then and I let the ocean run into it, right? In an instant, what would happen? That cup would be filled with the ocean, right? I mean, it's full to the top with the ocean, and but we could never put the fullness of the ocean in that cup. But the cup can be full of the ocean, but we can't ever put the fullness of the ocean in that cup. Well, thinking of Christ like that, we realize that because he's infinite, he can hold all the fullness of deity, right? And whenever one of us, his finite little creatures, dips the tiny little vessel of our life into him, we instantly become full of his fullness. Does that make sense? So now from the perspective of humanity, this is really interesting as well. The capacity of our containers is of great importance, our souls, right? That, that our souls are, you could almost say they're kind of elastic, right? You know that they, that There's no limits to the possibility of the capacity that we can take in. We can never take it in at all, but we're, we can stretch in it, if you will, right? We can always open up to hold more of the fullness of Jesus. And I'm sure you've had those moments in your life where you felt like that right? So it's like uh, the more we receive of his fullness, the more we can receive. We've got to understand that his fullness meets our needs, right? Think of that. God in us. Really, really, really in us. So that at that moment, we can have wisdom, strength, courage. Now something may come along the line and that starts to wane a little bit. I'm not saying you're you know, filled with the Spirit, you're not filled with the Spirit. That's not true. You're you're full all the time, but the capacity of, of your I guess you you know you don't. I've seen this, illustrations, perhaps you have as well, of like somebody has a cup full of water, and the cups you and the water's the Holy Spirit, and the rocks that you're going to drop in there are your sin. You put the rocks in, the water comes out. You know, now you got less. Of the, no. We are full all the time, right? The Spirit doesn't wane, wax and wane as we um, sin or not. But as we grow in Christ and we become more dependent on Him, we can stretch our fullness, if you will. So we've got to remember also that as we continue in Him, what happens? We, we experience satisfaction, don't we? We we experience the satisfaction of his fullness as we become more dependent on him. And it, it's a continual stream filling and overflowing in our lives. And it never, ever runs dry. Um, John Piper's got a thing of, um, he calls it the bucket brigade. You know, we don't need to... Um, be down here at the bottom of the stream filling the bucket up to take it up here to dump it at the headwater so that it continues to flow down here and just back and forth. Back. That's not what we're talking about, right? The stream of God's love and fullness in us is constant. It doesn't come and go. If, if we're full of Him, how in the world could we want, or maybe better said, why in the world would we want anything else? Do you ever think about that? Why do I get so... We'll talk about this more in a minute, but why do I get so drawn away um, by other things when I'm full of Christ? A theologian, Alexander McLaren, put it this way. Though all the earth were covered with helpers and lovers of my soul, as the sand by the seashore innumerable, and all the heavens were sown with faces of angels who cared for me and succored me, thick as the stars in the Milky Way. All could not do for me what I need. Yea, though all these were gathered into one mighty and loving creature, even he were no sufficient state for one soul of man. We want more than creature help. We need the whole fullness of the Godhead to draw from. It is all there in Christ for each of us. Whosoever will, let him draw freely. Why should we leave the fountain of living waters to hew out cisterns with infinite pains, broken cisterns that can hold no water. All we need is in Christ. Let us lift our eyes from the low earth and all creatures, and behold, no man anymore as Lord and Helper, save Jesus only, that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. So how do we get there, right? How do we get a mindset like McLaren's talking about? Well, if we look at verses 11 through 15 we find Paul elaborating on on the Colossians' fullness and he does it by implication um, of, of being united with Christ, of what, actually what Christ accomplished and then us being in him. Because he begins explaining to the Colossians that they were full because being in Christ, right, being in him, they participated in the events of the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection. And that, ...implies to us as well. So let's read verses 11 through 15 again. Uh, This is the foundation for our fullness in Christ. Verse 11, "...in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead." And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over him, um, over them in him. So Paul's telling us that they and we participated in Christ's death. So, and he he does that by talking about circumcision. Now, circumcision usually doesn't uh, refer to death, but, uh, you know, we've talked a lot in the last weeks of that this heresy that was going on in Colossae with these uh, Gnostics was a mixture of pagan philosophy along with Jewish legalism. So when you bring those two together... It's not surprising that the false teachers like the Judaizers that Paul confronted in Galatia well they were teaching that in order to be saved you have to be circumcised and they were talking about the circumcision of the flesh that uh with the Jewish um law that um but here it's it's referring to death um you know it's an amazing thing that the way God pictures this for us um all the scholars agree that, that this circumcision is different than the circumcision of, of the flesh. F.F. F. Bruce said, but here it provides a gruesome metaphor for the crucifixion. His circumcision on the cross involved the stripping away of a small piece, not the stripping away of a small piece of flesh, but the violent removal of his entire body in death so the colossians and us now in christ as believers spiritually shared the circumcision of his death and with that now catch this with that the sinful nature was cut away Th- those are shouting words aren't they our sinful nature was cut away right they they die and we they died and we die to our former way of life when we're in Christ. So what Paul's really trying to emphasize here is that, that the Colossians really did, and we today really do, spiritually participate in Christ's death. Um, he reinforced it by pointing or alluding to the baptism, meaning their burial with Christ, the beginning of verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism. Listen to this commentator, a guy named Peter O'Brien. He says, at the burial of Christ, I'm sorry, as the burial of Christ set the seal upon his death, so the Colossians' burial with him in baptism shows that they were truly involved in his death and laid in his grave. It is not as though they simply died like Jesus died or were buried as he was laid in the tomb. The burial proves that a real death has occurred and the old life is now a thing of the past. That means that the practical implications of this are immense for us. I mean, think about that. When Christ's body was circumcised from him in his death, we were circumcised in that as well. We died, right? I mean, Paul says in Galatians 2, 20, I, I've been crucified with Christ. Nobody goes through crucifixion and, you know, gets down off the cross a few hours later and walks away. You know, the whole purpose of it is death. And, and we, we know that in him we died, and, and so that means that we don't have to serve sin anymore. Look, if, if you will, real quick at Romans chapter 6. Verse 6, Romans 6, 6 and 7. It says there, um, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Wow. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So the old self, the old person before conversion was crucified with Christ, dead, right? We, we got we to gotta do something with that thought. The body of sin, the vehicle of sin has been rendered inoperative. Isn't that great? I mean, that is fantastic news. Uh, so this is, that's what the fullness that Christ has given us entails. We're free now to live life to its fullest, the way that we were intended to live life free from the domination of sin. You know, in a world that's always seeking a full life, you know, believers are the only ones from whom it's really possible. And, you know, one of the, from my former life, the dead one, I remember a, a beer, Miller High Life. You know, live the high life. Christians are the only ones that get that. It ain't in a beer, right? It's in Jesus, right? Um Just when you think it couldn't get any better, though, Paul builds on this. He said, look at verse 12. The fullness reaches full blossom when we participate in Christ's resurrection. Verse 12 says, having been. Okay, what is that? Is that something in the future or is that now? Past tense. It's really past tense, right? Having been. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So the resurrection, it's not future for us. It's right now. He says you were raised. You know, when we become part of the body of Christ by baptizing in the identifying work of the Holy Spirit, he says that we're baptized into the ascension of, of Christ. Resurrection life is now. I mean, Paul even said in Ephesians 2, six, we are even seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Right now, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Philip Brooks, a preacher in the 1800s, he said this, The great Easter truth is not that we are to live newly after death. That is not the great thing, but that we are to be new here. Not so much that we are to live forever as that we are to and may live nobly now. Right? We're resurrected now. And and we need to allow that to saturate our being, don't we? Because that will empower us to live honorable lives today. I mean, this, I'm telling you all, when I studied this this week in conjunction with that book, finished that book, Rejoicing in Christ, I was like, I was floating, right? Look at Romans 6, uh, again, verses 8 through 11 how this all ties together. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Now here's our part. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So the word it's must consider in the ESV. Does anybody else have another word there? Yes. NIV I think says count. King James says reckon. What's the New American Standard say? Pardon. Consider. Consider. Okay. What is the RSV got there? That's verse eleven, Romans six eleven. Consider. Okay. So. That means to set your account straight, to compute. It's a mathematical term, right? He's saying we're to reflect. It's kind of a banking term, really. We're to reflect on our position in Christ and then set two things to our account. One, we're dead to sin. Two, we're alive to God in Christ Jesus. Those two things. Consider that, right? Um, and the practical, practical application of that for you and I today is to daily, daily reckon that to our account, daily reckoning, consider each and every day that we died with Christ, we're buried with Him, and that we are resurrected with Him as well. So that ought to dominate our minds again and again and again so that then it dominates our being. Remember, everything we do starts in our thinking, right? Everything we do. You don't do anything without thinking about it. You might, out of habit, tie your shoe without thinking or brush your teeth without, but you know, or scary enough nowadays, even drive a car without thinking. But, you know, you have to have the initial thought to get up and go do one of those things. But, you know, our actions are, are determined by our first, our thinking, right? We think about something, then we start to feel a certain way, and then we act upon that. And, you know, have, have you ever really considered that who you were before you were saved doesn't exist anymore? That person is gone, Praise God, right, if you were like me. I mean, that's a great thing. But this fantastic news continues because he says in verses 13 through 15 that we're basically were delivered from bondage. Look at verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So dead is the description of the spiritual state of every human being who's not in Christ. Right? It's not a flattering term, but we can't escape it. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your transgressions transgressions and sins. So, outside of Christ, humanity cannot perceive the truth of divine revelation. You all right with a thought like that? Apart from Christ, mankind cannot perceive anything of God. Now, how can I say that? you know think think physically, right if um, we probably all here have been to a funeral and and seen a, a person that has passed away, right um, if you walked up to them and poked them what's going to happen Nothing why They're dead A physically dead person cannot under any circumstances respond to physical stimuli right I mean you can poke them all day long they're not going to go ouch you know but it's the same thing spiritually why do we think for a moment that a spiritually dead person can respond to spiritual stimuli. Can't. Paul says we're dead. And dead, whether it's physical or spiritual, is what? Dead. Can't respond, right? And, that, and he tells us here and in Ephesians, that was y'all. You were dead. So outside of Christ, humanity cannot perceive the truth of divine revelation. And that's very clear in 1 Corinthians 2.14 that says the natural person, that's the unchristian, the unsaved, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly. They're foolish to him. So, without Christ, we can do nothing to get life. Right? So, there has to be a sovereign communication of life from God to the dead person. All of us, were once dead, right? We were all once dead, but through Christ divine surgery's taken place. And and now we are alive. I mean, that's real, isn't it? I mean, if you're if you're really born again, you understand that, right? I mean, you just think about that word, born again. Um John chapter 3, and and I don't like any translation of that. I haven't found one yet that says it right, because every Bible's got it in the margin. It means born from above. So why in the world there's not a Bible translation that says what it... Why they got to put it in the margin? Why can't they just put it in the text? Some of you scholars know. I don't. It bugs me. But I don't know why I got to look at the little number next to it and look over there to see what it really means. Why can't they just put what it really means in the text? I'm sure there's a reason, but I don't know it. Anyway just as we did nothing to pick our mom and dad here or when or where we would be born, neither can we do anything about our spiritual birth. This has to come from God. Well, it gets better. So now that we're awake, awakened by God, um, he continues and he's telling us that that the bondage of death is gone and the guilt of sin. In verse 13, B and fourteen. God made a life together with Him, having forgiven us all or some, all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. So it's like our guilt's like an IOU, right? We owe, right? Signed, Tim Brown. I owe God. Signed and I hand it to God, and I'm saying, okay, God, I promise to obey you. Well, that's a lie, right? I can't do that. Um, But Jesus takes our IOU, he nails it to the cross above his head. He takes it and nails it there, which then pays for it. An English uh, pastor, um, J.B. Phillips, has a modern English translation of the Bible. He says about this verse, he He translates translates it this way: He has forgiven you all your sins. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which always hung over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. That's good, isn't it? Just as Pilate put the his claims up there, Jesus took ours or God took ours and put them up there as well. So now there, there's no tyranny like that of guilt, is there? I mean, does when you feel the condemnation of the guilt, it's a wonderful thing to know now that that's been taken away from us. You know, guilt is a good thing, I think, that God gives us. I mean, that's how we know when we're sinning, right? When we feel guilty about it. But instead of going into some form of morbid introspection and you know, groveling along, we can rejoice in the fact that God has delivered us from that. We can be full. And, and that's why, if we can be full like that, like the Colossians word, that's why we don't need any of this stuff that these other philosophies are going to be throwing at us. And we'll see that as chapter 2 unpacks of all the things, right, that, that they come out with. So Paul concluded that, that this fullness comes from being in Christ. And it involves also the deliverance of sin, but also the bondage of evil powers. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So these are the demonic powers that are coming against the church. God puts them on public display. Conquered rulers put on public display. Uh, You know, I thought of um, a few years back... uh, you know, when the, uh, what was his name in Iraq? Uh, Saddam Hussein. You remember? Didn't they drag his body around and all the cameras saw it? And, you know, evil put on display. You know, and that's what God's doing here. He's making a public spectacle of Satan and his demons. And even though they've been, they still exist, but they're defeated. Right. So we shouldn't get so wrapped up in the fact that we're looking over our shoulder every day to see, you know, what Satan's going to throw at us next. God has defeated him. Right. Because God put him to open shame. We don't need to fear that any longer. Christ has conquered and he continues to each and every day. So, you know, in Christ, the end of the day here is in Christ, we have every, 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 everything that we need to live this life in a manner that pleases Him, free from the guilt of sin, free from the bondage of sin. We don't have to sin anymore. And I was going to read you a quote in here from uh, Spurgeon along these lines. um, uh, Talking about being exposed to Christ, it says, Over, uh, being exposed to Christ overcomes our imperfection and liberates us. Once again, it cures us far more effectively than any effort at self improvement. Think about that. It cures us more effectively than any effort of self improvement. Like the genial sun on the frost of our hearts, said Charles Spurgeon. Here's the Spurgeon quote. I cannot liken it to anything that I know of better than the snow which melts in the sun. You wake up in the morning, and all the trees are festooned with snowy wreaths, while down below upon the ground the snow lies in a white sheet over everything. Lo, the sun has risen, its beams shed a genial warmth, and in a few hours, where is the snow? It has passed away. Had you hired a thousand carts and horses and machines to sweep it away, it could not have been more effectively removed. It has passed away. That is what the Lord does in the new creation. His love shines on the soul. His grace renews us. And the old things pass away as a matter of course. Where his blessed face beams with grace and truth as the sun with warmth and light he dissolves the bands of sin's long frost and brings on the spring of grace with newness of buds and flowers. Isn't that good? Um, I mean, that's us in Christ. You know, that we don't have to be taken captive by anything the world throws at us. And I mean, I think today, it's, it's rapid throwing today compared to what the Colossians were, were taking on, right? And we're just bombarded from every angle Constantly, But if we can train our minds to focus on the fullness of Christ, the fact that we were dead to sin, we're alive to Christ, then we can walk victoriously and not be drawn off sides by those things. So, any final comments? Did everybody write down the name of that book. <laughs> no, I don't think so. Uh, Michael Reeves. No. The book is Michael Reeves' Rejoicing in Christ. And um, Amazon has it. That's where I got Well, I got it. <laughs> it's too marked up. It's neat, though. He's got little uh, illustrations all in here. They're in black and white. They're kind of hard to read, but there's one of my favorites. Anybody know what that one is? Yeah, Christian and Pilgrim's Progress there. So, yeah, really good. You know, he's got these sections in here that will be a... Uh, now, keep in mind, some of this um, is just theory, you know. But, you know, I mean, we can throw our little theories in there. And one of them, I can't remember the guy's name, um, one of the old early church fathers. Um, I was That's how long I've been reading this. This was right around Easter. He, he said that uh, he, this guy, I can't remember who it was. Arrhenius, maybe? Was he an early guy? Anyway, he uh he said um that he didn't see a break between Genesis two and three. So he was saying that um that sin entering the world, um that, that Adam Adam never got to um enjoy paradise. In other words, he went from that straight to sin. So he went from um he called that day um bad Friday you know because it was the, that would have been the sixth day he never got into God's rest on Saturday so Adam and Eve sinned according to that guy the early church father on Friday that was bad Friday and then Christ reconciled that on good Friday so then, then we can enter the rest oh, it's just a neat little thought <laughs> it's, I just happen to be reading that right around Easter time so and if you find it's heresy don't come to me <laughs>